Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we begin with a story. Once upon a time, I ran into trouble with some of the toughest guys in my very large high school. A bunch of them had it out for me, including Athanasios Lucanis. That's a funny name, actually. Well, the first name is pretty cool. Athanasios means deathless or immortal. But everyone called him Thanos, like the supervillain, because it means death. And he was supposed to be a killer on the playing field, so all the jocks called him Thanos. That's just what he was known by. Even the teachers called him Thanos. He was so big and strong that we all believed the rumors he was on steroids. His hot temper added to the steroid vibe, but mainly this kid was built like a professional wrestler. He was a senior, and I was a mere sophomore when all this happened. And so I had never spoken a word to him personally, and I only ended up on his hit list by means of rumor, innuendo, and strange misunderstandings. Even back then, I found it all funny. And I wasn't frightened so much as curious how it would all turn out. I may have made things worse when I joked with someone about Thanos' name. His last name is one of those occupational or tradecraft names, like Smith, Fisher, Fletcher, Baker. In this case, Lucanis would be a name for a butcher. But Lucanico is a Greek sausage... And I could not have been the only person to point out that the guy's name meant immortal sausage. Goddess help me if he's listening now. Anyway, that added fuel to the fire. And it seemed as though a showdown might happen any day. And that day finally arrived on a school holiday. We had a day off in the spring every year. And a lot of kids had a tradition of going to an amusement park to let off steam for a day. I went with five friends. These were some of my closest friends in high school. And we found ourselves standing in line for a roller coaster. The line curved back and forth like a labyrinth. And at one point, I turned to see a couple of the lower level tough guys of the school. They were in line behind us, smoking cigarettes while they waited. And as the line snaked around, we came close to them. They stood just on the other side of the metal railing that separated the sections of the line. And I spontaneously asked one of them if I could have a hit off of his cigarette. That might seem strange, but it was a Jedi mind trick sort of move. I thought if I asked him to give me a cigarette, he'd just say no, and it wouldn't go well. But I was right that he didn't know what to make of my asking him for a drag off of his cigarette. I didn't smoke, and I would have looked like the kind of high school sophomore who didn't smoke. I imagine he was a little stunned that I would even ask for something so intimate, especially since he ran with the crowd that was out to get me. 
I was trying to break down barriers. I didn't even know this kid, really. He looked at me, I won't say it like a deer in headlights because it's cliche and it also doesn't really fit. He was a bit of a predatory punk. But he was a kid and I had confused him. So he looked a little puzzled, a little confused. And as I stared back at him warmly and confidently, he handed me his cigarette. It delighted me to see this quizzical look on his face and then to take the cigarette from him and to take a long drag on the cigarette and watch him watching me. I smiled, held up his cigarette as if approving of its quality, and then I placed the burning end of the cigarette into my left hand, closing the hand around it as I looked calmly. That's a bit warm, I said, smiling. He looked surprised. I exhaled all the smoke onto my closed hand, and as it opened, the hand was empty. The cigarette was gone. Magic can seem a little nerdy. Some magicians have become pretty famous and have given magic a bit of cachet. But when you're in high school, it can go either way and people would love any reason to give you a hard time. Nevertheless, I found magic fascinating. Even though some of my friends gave me a hard time about it, I really lived for the experience of magic, both receiving it and giving it. I had given this kid the experience of magic. This all happened before it was so easy to just go online and find out how many ways a magician can make a cigarette disappear. So for him, it was astonishing that someone could put a burning hot cigarette into their hand, open that hand, and reveal the cigarette had vanished without a trace. We'll contemplate these things with greater care in a bit, but for now, let's say I could see the experience of magic in his eyes. However, I had wielded a power that did not belong to me. I had mostly good intentions, but I was still so young and inexperienced, maybe a bit cocky, and it all went sideways. I tried to cast a spell that would break down the barriers between us, and that spell did hold the little ruffian for a minute or two, but the spell wore off and he remembered that I was the enemy. He at first looked astonished and said, where did it go? But then as the wheels started clicking, he looked at me with increasing agitation and his question became aggressive. Where's my cigarette? Where's my effing cigarette, man? He actually swore, of course, and I tried to calm him down. I said, it's gone. It's just gone. Bring it back. Some things can't be undone. I want my effing cigarette. Relax. It's in a good place. I want my cigarette. 
I'll buy you another. How much is a cigarette? A quarter? Here's a quarter. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a quarter. He smacked my hand aside. The quarter went flying. I don't want a quarter. I want my effing cigarette back. I'll buy you a pack. He wasn't having it. My friends were useless. They were practically frozen, totally silent. The situation got bizarrely intense in very little time. And we only escaped because the line started moving again and there were lots of adults. It was a mixed crowd, so it wasn't like he was going to jump over or push past a bunch of grown-ups in order to get at me. Our line moved, his line moved in the other direction because of the way the lines were snaking around. And we started heading up the ramp to the platform to get on the roller coaster. So the tough guys were just stuck in the line. It was pretty clear that they wanted to ride the roller coaster or maybe didn't occur to them to get out of line. So we felt like we had a head start to get away from them. They just didn't make any move to jump out of the line, which would have been the easiest way for them to get to me. We were stuck getting on the roller coaster. They could have just gotten out of line, waited at the exit for the ride. And so I wasn't sure. Maybe they had waited so long in line. You know how long the lines can be at amusement parks, and they just weren't about to give it up. They wanted to ride the roller coaster first. But even more likely, I really do think they were so worked up that it didn't occur to them to get out of the line. They were making fists, and it seemed like they were trying to shoot lasers out of their eyeballs. Either that, or they suddenly felt painfully constipated. But in general, they let me know that I was a dead man. My friends and I got onto the roller coaster, and the tough guys were one or two rounds behind us. They watched us as the coaster pulled away to begin its dramatic ascent up that first hill. And finally, as the roller coaster is click, click, clicking slowly up the first steep hill, my friends begin to speak. And all they wanted to do was to chastise me for making trouble. I said, I wasn't trying to make trouble. I was trying to make friends. Who knew the guy would react like that? He went ballistic. My friends didn't care. They said, that's how those guys are. Haven't you figured that out by now? You got into this mess and you keep making it worse. If they come after you, you're on your own. Well, how reassuring. We got off the roller coaster and started walking, at first moving pretty quickly because the guys were nervous. It was clear that they were nervous. But once we got... 100 yards away or more we, we just we couldn't see the roller coaster they would have had no idea which direction we went so my friends calmed down and it seemed as though we could just try and dodge the ruffians for the rest of the day not the funnest way to spend our time but none of us wanted to leave about an hour later the day got unexpectedly better we were walking along and Ariadne Theodrakis was suddenly walking toward me, not toward us, not walking in our general direction, but smiling at me, looking me in the eyes and walking right up to me. Ariadne Theodrakis was one of the most beautiful young women in our school. She was tall, she had eyes like the Mediterranean, a voice like honey butter. 
She was in my grade, but she was so attractive that she spent most of her time hanging out with the seniors. Not because they were particularly mature, it's just what happens. I thought I was more mature than most of the people she was hanging out with, and I always thought that, eh, you know, these are the high school things, right? I was a mere sophomore, and this was a large public school. We had over 500 people in our class, and the Frosch students were actually in the middle school. So being a sophomore was like being a freshman. We definitely felt like newbies, and sophomores are never going to be as cool as seniors. But in this moment, I was beside myself. Why on earth would this lovely young woman walk up to me with such enthusiasm? We did have a little chemistry. We didn't live very far from each other, so I would see her not infrequently. And we were both Minoans. In the few exchanges we had, we always clicked. She seemed to find me charming enough, and Greeks with last names ending in K-I-S, as in Patadakis or Theodrakis, usually have origins in Crete. Depending on your lineage, your ancestors may have been Minoans. My family always thought of itself as Minoan, as if we were ultimately indigenous people who had gotten swept up in the process of colonization like everyone else, and we were proud of this ancient, ancient lineage. So, when I saw Ariadne walking up to me with her unmistakable poise, I smiled and said, Hello, Minoan princess. You look sensational. How are you today? She says, I'm fine. How are you? Her smile made me smile harder. I thought my cheeks were going to break. I said, I am delightful now that you're here. Are you enjoying the day? She said, yes, but I was wondering if you would do something for me. For you? Anything? Name it. Would you make a cigarette disappear for me? I wasn't sure what to make of it. Since she hung around with the upperclassmen, including the popular kids who wanted to get at me, and since the lower-level ruffians would have reported to those top dogs, she must have heard about the magic trick. And looking in her eyes, it seemed that she wanted to see the magic for herself. So I happily agreed. She said, great and started walking, taking me by the arm. My friends were perfectly happy to walk along with this beautiful person, and they kept up in lockstep as close as they could get. It felt marvelous to walk with this young woman. But we went over an arching bridge, and as we cleared the crest of it, suddenly... I could see a whole gang of people waiting, including both the little ruffians from the roller coaster as well as the top dogs. As soon as they came into sight, I kept my eyes on them. And at the same time, my awareness opened up around me. I wasn't sure what to expect, and I became hyper aware of the surroundings. And that meant I noticed my friends scattering in all directions behind me, away from the group of people who stood waiting. I walked forward, and 
into the group of people that was large enough that as I stepped toward them, I could feel a circle form and close around me. Whoom! I was completely surrounded, stuck in a labyrinth of high school hotheads. And this maze of people surrounding me included several football players, several of the wrestling team, and a handful of guys who had a reputation for being tough. Among the little crowd was Thanos, who appeared right in front of me and smiled at me with an inscrutable look. I couldn't tell if I was being surrounded to hide the view of a fight. I trusted Ariadne, but Thanos was an uncontrollable variable. Most of these guys were. Nevertheless, I felt oddly at ease. Now, on the one hand, I hadn't been afraid of Thanos because I thought that he wasn't really trained in fighting. And I had sparred and even competed against people who were pretty big. And certainly my instructors were a lot scarier than Thanos was. Sparring in standard competition and even training in a dojo are not really the same as a street fight. But being young and ignorant, I wasn't afraid to employ the techniques we were taught exclusively for dangerous or even life-threatening situations. And anyone who trains at anything consistently and seriously usually has an advantage. At the same time, there were all these other guys surrounding me. It wasn't just Thanos, and they might decide to overwhelm me. Really, the sense of ease I had came from my trust in magic, not in the martial arts. Standing face to face with Thanos and looking into the eyes of the other guys gathered around me, I sensed the power of the experience of magic, and I wanted to let it really work this time. Everything is in this liminal space between some kind of tension that could go sideways and just a kind of suspension. It's really like there we are all at a threshold. Ariadne pulls out a cigarette. I thank her for it. And I say, would you light it for me? She does so. That, again, made it intimate. The cigarette had been on her lips, and now it was going to mine. There was a sensual vibe, without anything creepy, just a single young man and a single young woman about to share a secret. I say to her, My dear Minoan maiden, our ancestors experienced the ancient mysteries. Some of the mysteries had to do with death. The biggest mystery is when something seems to go away and it doesn't seem to appear again. Are you comfortable with mystery? Are you comfortable with not knowing, which could one day lead to knowing a secret?
Ariadne smiles and says, yes. I say, okay, we will all enter the mystery together. And as I pronounce those words, I look around as if purposefully including everyone, inviting them into a mystery and casting a spell. I say, can everyone see? One of the ruffians squats down and puts his head directly under my hands. Thanos gets closer to me, and I can see him so clearly. I can see the childlike awareness beyond all the facade. He's genuinely curious. He wants to see magic. I say, let's do this slowly. No tricks. Watch this cigarette and ask yourself how well you tolerate pain. That bit about tolerating pain made the magic a little shamanic and added to the kind of strange mystery of a moment like this. I puff on the cigarette, point at the tip of it and say, looks hot, right? I take a long drag, then put the cigarette into my hand, burning tip first. I blow smoke onto the hand, then open it. Gone. Everyone is amazed. Ariadne smiles at me as if to say, I knew it. She knew something. I knew something. I walked away while the tough guys talked over what they had just seen. It was clear they found it inexplicable. And it was clear that the danger was over. Those guys never harassed me again. We didn't exactly become friends because we didn't move in the same circles or have any real shared interests anyway. But the whole ambiance of aggression had disappeared with that second cigarette. Aggression and tension going back weeks all vanished. Of course, nowadays, if I were still doing that kind of magic and wanted to make a cigarette disappear, I wouldn't do it in a way that a person could find on YouTube in a few seconds. I wouldn't bother because it wouldn't really give people the same experience of magic which was fresh and alive in this particular situation. The experience of magic is the essential thing. That's why I got into doing that kind of magic. So many of us, especially when we're young, we, we sense the realness of magic in the world. We don't always know what it really is or how to access it, especially in this culture. The dominant culture leaves us bereft from the kind of magic the soul hungers for. But let's not make this mistake. The dominant culture is filled with magical thinking. 
most especially so maybe because it's a capitalistic culture, a culture of conquest consciousness. And the marketplace in particular is a place of magical thinking. The marketplace has no real connection with reality, but tries to tell us stories of rationality, practicality, and being realistic, along with filling us full of propaganda that sort of impulses us into fear and craving. When we've had the real experience of magic, whether in life or because someone produces it by means of sleight of hand, we feel something existential and philosophical that the marketplace cannot give us. It's as if we know we have touched a truth about the mystery of life. We long for the magician's trick to be real because something in us knows the magic of the cosmos and wants that doorway to open to it. One of the interesting things about sleight of hand magic is that we think of it as not real. If we imagine that we live in a Newtonian universe, then magic in the most wondrous sense is not real. The only real magic is sleight of hand or illusion. But if someone does sleight of hand or they perform an illusion, we say, it's not real. It was just a trick. Isn't that funny? On the one hand, we might think we just like to complain. Give us the only real magic possible in Antonian universe and we say it's not real. But maybe we just hunger for real magic. Something in us knows we don't live in a Newtonian machine. Even our science admits this. But our scientists get very superstitious and afraid. They behave as if something dangerous will happen if we were to even entertain the possibility of real magic. The metaphysical police come out in full force. We get a real shakedown. When we take magic seriously, we get treated the way the dominant culture treats anything it wants to marginalize. It's a far cry from being born black or indigenous, but we should note that many indigenous practices and beliefs, indigenous cultures in general, relate to a cosmos that is anything but a Newtonian machine. The dominant culture shows disdain for what it considers primitive. In other words, indigenous people often have their own magic, and that magic threatens the magical thinking of the dominant culture, which itself is pretty primitive. So it's all rather ironic. If we listen carefully to the militant skeptics and the militant atheists of the world, we often hear a level of downright meanness and contempt when they mention things that would qualify as properly magical. The attitude feels quite inappropriate for people who claim to be rational and good-hearted. In romantic relationships, scorn or contempt is the deadliest emotion. Once we feel contempt, 
for the person we supposedly loved, we have crossed a threshold and created a wound we need to heal. Otherwise, things will fall apart. So contempt only causes more problems. And yet many so-called skeptics seem to have at least a hint, if not an outright boatload, of contempt for people who want to speak sincerely about things that qualify as real magic. The professional magicians of the dominant culture are entertainers. And they succeed in large part by giving us the experience of magic. An experience not simply of the impossible, but more an experience of the possible. The possible mystery that we might really be a part of. It's what they play off of. It's the secret of their success. The ones who are able to tap into that. Not in every case. In a way, professional magic mirrors real magic surprisingly closely. The professional magician may not have all of this stuff in mind, and certainly maybe not in a fully conscious way, but they nevertheless tap into archetypal patterns and energies. And thus, magic as an entertainment mirrors many rituals, mysteries, and initiations that occur in we could say indigenous cultures, sometimes cultures more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. Consider the kinds of things magicians do. What we see again and again is a death and resurrection show acted out on some small and relatively intimate scale. Maybe right in front of you. Maybe you're the only one there, or it's you and a few friends. Or maybe it's acted out on a stage, which is still a small scale, relatively speaking. Magic in the dominant culture is still an act of theater, but it's a special kind of theater that displays before the soul the hero's journey and the mystery of death and resurrection. Isn't that remarkable? The mystery of death right there. Do we realize that that's why we often go to see the magician? At times, the magic show has to do with the part of the hero's journey that involves seeking something, like seeking the Holy Grail, which heals all wounds. When a magician asks us to participate in the show, we get put in the hero's position for just a few moments. It's our quest. It's our mystery. Uh, even if we're just watching the magic, we're still participating somehow in that archetypal pattern. The hero's journey always involves mystery and the unknown. And that's what we experience at a magic show. The hero goes out and confronts a mystery, sometimes to recover a lost object, sometimes to learn a secret, and often to confront death. Sometimes magic involves an object that is lost and can be found again, 
like a coin that vanishes and reappears. Sometimes magic involves a secret that can be revealed, like revealing the card you selected, or even revealing something you merely thought of. But again and again, even in the case of an object that's lost and then found again, what we see is a death and resurrection show. We confront the mystery of death and the mystery of life. The coin or the card vanishes. It's gone. It died. And yet, it can come back again. A woman is cut in half, and she can be restored. Like a shaman who goes to the underworld, is torn to pieces, and puts herself together again. The magician vanishes and then reappears at the back of the theater like a sage who dies on a cross and then appears on the roadway. A card is burned and reappears in a spectator's own wallet like a soul lost and then recalled. This is the death and resurrection show the mystery played out like a theater for the soul and a figure who can apparently tap into the sacred powers and inconceivable causes of life, of the cosmos. A person who is in their presentation before us, someone in touch with the mystery of life. Now, given all of this, you can see where I went wrong the first time I made the cigarette vanish. Remember, at the roller coaster, I asked the tough guy for a drag on his cigarette. And then I made his cigarette disappear, and he got really angry and wanted it back. And it might seem that the kid just got angry, but if we understand what I did to the psyche, Without a proper context, without building the right framework for it, I presented the psyche with death and didn't offer the possibility of resurrection. There was more to it than that, of course, but it was also the case that there was a tension there somehow, some way. Like a lot of bullies, this was probably a sensitive kid in bad circumstances. I myself was not a very good kid when my mother and stepfather were getting a divorce. I didn't realize how deeply all the intense things going on in our house were affecting me. Because I was too young and we don't live in a mature culture. We're trying to acknowledge here that what seemed like a silly sleight of hand trick performed for a hot-headed teenager was in fact a dramatic theater performed for a sensitive soul, and the ego erupted. The experience of magic is powerful, and it doesn't matter whether we want to call it real or not. John Dewey tried to help the dominant culture understand this. Dewey was one of the greatest philosophers born on Turtle Island from within the dominant culture. There are plenty of wonderful sages not from the dominant culture born on Turtle Island, but Dewey is, was a pretty insightful philosopher. 
In his essay, Reality as Experience, Dewey tried to help us see the reality of experience itself, even if experience seems to us like a latecomer to the dance. In other words, we have this story that the universe consists of matter and that only after billions of years did experience appear. But even if we are militant atheists, we can find the never-not-nowness, the never-not-hereness of life. That may sound confusing, but it becomes essential to touch this if we are to truly understand a better way of knowing and being, a better way of living and loving. Because our philosophy of life always demands experiment and experience. Without serious experiment and increasing intimacy with our own experience, we remain stuck in a limited reality, and that has real consequences. Reality, funny word. Reality, in one sense, is what we take for granted as true. What we take for granted as true amounts to what we believe. In one sense, what we believe is based on our perceptions. However, what we perceive depends on what we look for. What we look for is a complex matter. It's tied up with our personal and cultural karma. In a simple sense, what we look for depends on what we think. And that means our whole style of thinking, the way we think, not just what we think as in the contents of the thoughts. The way we think depends on what we believe already and also what we are able to perceive. And what we are able to perceive further reinforces our beliefs. It's a matter of capacity. In some sense, being trapped in our karma means being unable to fully perceive in a fresh way and remaining stuck in our beliefs. Our beliefs determine what we accept as true and what we accept as true remains our reality. That little bit might have been hard to hold in mind. You might want to go back over it. We went full circle there, describing how our reality can remain limited by what we take for granted, what we believe, which in turn constrains our thinking and perceptions. It's a whole kind of uh, interwoven system, each thing feeding back into the other. Now, if we take for granted, if we take for granted the absence of magic in the world, then we will likely remain stuck in a world without magic. All of this depends on experience. These words like reality, belief, thought, it's all experience. Reality is our experience. And we can practice our life in a way that opens up our experience.
we find right there the heart of love wisdom, that possibility for opening up experience and what that opening up means, what its significance is for us. We can test any tradition of love wisdom. We can test any philosophy only by means of experience. That is, to experiment and experience. We have to run the experiments on a philosophy and test out what it proposes. Now, in a way, we also have an initial conceptual kind of test. We examine a philosophy and consider the conclusions it suggests. When we refer those conclusions back to our life, our ordinary life as we live it, we ask, does this philosophy seem to bring our experience alive, making life somehow feel more significant and more luminous? Does the philosophy empower us so that we find greater skill and poise as we relate to ourselves and our world? Does it help us become more graceful in our lives? Having a a real sense of beauty? Does it help us become more caring and capable? Now, even here, we can sense why we have all fallen under the spell of the dominant cultures, technology, and science. Because technology and science in the dominant culture appear to give us a sense of enrichment and also an apparent increase of power over things. We mistake this for the meaningfulness and empowerment the soul naturally seeks to realize. But does the philosophy of life that guides science and technology in the dominant culture Does that philosophy of life actually make our lives more luminous and fruitful, more genuinely meaningful and abundant? Microwaves and single-serving coffee machines can make things easier relative to our current context. Laptops too, cell phones, all of it. But do those things make the world itself more luminous? the world as we experience it. Does a microwave or a coffee pod machine illuminate our experience of life and genuinely make it more abundant? And if it doesn't, we have a real problem because no ignorance goes unpunished. And we're talking about measuring a level of wisdom in a philosophy of life. And when we think about these sorts of questions, we have to do it without making a duality between theory and practice. And that means we're asking, has science, which goes totally together with technology, has science given us skillful knowledge or practical wisdom? If skillful knowledge or practical wisdom has something to do with increasing the luminosity and real fruitfulness of our experience, the real abundance of our life. How intelligent is it to direct our experience to the collapse of the conditions of life? It's another way to put the question we're asking. 
Dewey touched on all of these things in his own way. He proposed the idea of immediate empiricism. And that means anything and everything is what we experience it as. Reality, in an important sense, is not a pre-given thing, not something outside of us, sitting still, waiting for us to detect it as it exists independently in itself. But rather, reality must be alive, flowing, transforming, evolving, and completely relational, interwoven, non-local. We can participate more skillfully in life when we responsibly enter into the ceaseless activity of cultivating the whole of life onward. And we discover there an essential aspect which we could call always more. This becomes quite real in and through practice, but we can easily sense that life has this always more dimension. We sense it in our experience. For instance, what is a horse? Dewey would tell us that when we ask someone what a horse is, they will explain a horse on the basis of how they experience a horse. We can experience a horse as a jockey, as a veterinarian, as an owner and breeder. If the veterinarian never rides a horse or never rides a horse in a race, the jockey has experienced something more than the veterinarian. On the other hand, if the jockey can't heal the horse and doesn't understand the physiological systems of the horse, the veterinarian has experienced more than the jockey. Neither the vet nor the jockey have truly experienced the horse as an investment, and so the owner shows there is yet more to the horse, at least more potentially. And we can see here the profound necessity for being critical of our own experience, because all of these people experience the horse from the limited and limiting perspective of human agendas. All of them experience the horse in ways that go together with the domination of the horse and the domination of nature in general. Even people who claim to have a compassionate approach to working with horses may miss that there is more to the horse than their limited thinking has discovered. It's part of the magic. If we could relate to the horse in the magical dimension or from a magical practice or perspective, we might discover the mystery of the horse that refuses all human agendas. Now, generally speaking, at this point we're just saying we have to be able to critique our experience and get beyond our horizons. And that horizon-busting is part of the experience of magic. Now, we should note that we have gotten to a point in the dominant culture at which we have so infringed upon one another that the only defense for some of us seems to involve hiding behind our experience. If we have experienced something, then we assert that it must be this way. And so we haven't faced up to the fuller vision Dewey tried to offer us or remind us of. 
because he was saying that, of course, if you experienced it, it was real. But was there more, and was your experience as true as you think it is? Would there be a truer experience, not more real, but somehow offering more luminosity and abundance? If we walk into a dimly lit room and we see a coiled up snake and we have a momentary freak out and then a few seconds later we turn on a light and we see it was only a coiled up rope or an extension cord, we would say that we have now had a truer experience. Seeing the snake was not less real, it was real. It was less true, but not less real. And we saw the snake because the coiled up rope contains, in its relation to itself, the world and us, it contained the possibility of appearing as a snake. The rope is more than a snake. We find that more in our experience. And as we get more intimacy, as we stay with experience and see what more it offers, All of this is a framework to say that the experience of magic is real, and it's as real as any other experience. Moreover, you might think I'm going to suggest that it's not necessarily true, but it could be true. There could be experiences of magic that are real and more true than some of our ordinary experiences that we take for granted. And the experience of magic, even if it's with an entertainer in that theater of the soul, is not necessarily less true than the experience of sleight of hand. You follow what we're saying. Two things. That magic, when we experience it, is real. It's as real as our habitual experience. And it's not necessarily less true. It might even be more true. But even if we bracket that and we say, no, no, I am watching sleight of hand. You say, all right, fine. The experience is real, but even thinking that it's sleight of hand might yet offer truth. Let's see if we could just look at that second part first, because it's important and interesting. The issue there is in part related to the nature of mind and the nature of nature. If mind and nature involve a kind of magic, then the experience of magic might illuminate them. For instance, we find a special power in illusions in particular. It's precisely because we know we are looking at a magical illusion that the illusion could liberate us, maybe totally liberate us from our ignorance. Now, people may have various understandings of the difference between a magician and an illusionist. Let's just say philosophically that for our purposes, an illusionist produces illusions and a magician produces magic. For the most part, the magician sticks to the hero's quest, the death and resurrection show, the finding of lost objects, the revelation of secrets. The illusionist, in this kind of technical sense that we're imagining here, focuses on one thing making us see what is not really there, just actively seeing what's not really there. 
In practice, magicians will sometimes perform illusions, and illusionists will sometimes perform magic. Sometimes magic relies on illusion. Sometimes illusions depend on magic. It's all over interwoven. But both kinds of performers can give us the experience of magic. That's also something we want to acknowledge. But the illusionist technically does something slightly different for our purposes and potentially more empowering. By showing us something that appears real, and yet which while we're looking at it and seeing it happen, we know isn't real, they reveal to us the nature of our own mind. If a magician levitates themselves or their assistant right in front of our eyes, we are looking at something that seems real. And it is real because of the principle of immediate empiricism. We see a floating person and we experience it as if they are floating. But we know they're not really floating. So while we experience it as real, and the experience is real, we also find it not quite true. We sense there is something more. Strangely then, the experience of an illusion points to a something more in our everyday experience. It will get clearer in a moment. Here we are. Now let's imagine you're looking not at a person floating in front of you, not a magician's illusion, but a person standing in front of you. Now when we experience a person standing in front of us, we actually can't find any such person. That's why the wisdom traditions teach us that we live as if under a spell. Now that might seem incredible, but we're going to clear it up. How could the wisdom traditions teach us such a thing? But they do. Again and again we discover the teaching that what we perceive is just like an illusion. It's real in a certain sense, and at the same time, it's not totally real. It's as if we're in the matrix. But in the old wisdom traditions, they didn't have the idea of supercomputers. So the magical illusion was one of the primary analogies that was used to explain what it's like when we're in a state of ignorance. Now, this is not merely an opinion or some sort of dogma. This, this is a basic teaching of the love wisdom traditions. And that means it's verifiable. We can verify it the way we would verify it how an illusion works. We could find out that the illusion is real as an experience, but not the whole truth. And so we could then watch the illusion and see how real it looks, knowing there is more to it than what we see. Similarly, we practice meditation in order to verify the nature of our own mind, and thus to verify the mind of nature we find out for ourselves. So to say it again, we require practice to be serious about any philosophical matter, or to be serious about our life. We have to run the experiment for ourselves. We have to read the blueprint of the mind, study the blueprint of the cosmos itself, the way we would read an illusionist blueprint for an illusion. Now that's a loose analogy, but that's why we use things like mandalas or a basic cosmogram. We're looking at, we're imagining the blueprint of reality. So we can understand this conceptually in, in a variety of ways. And maybe we'll go just into a little bit more detail. But as we contemplate this, if you happen to be driving right now, please remain at an intellectual level. Because 
If you inquire into your experience, you will become distracted from driving. And also, if you were to have an insight into the magic of your mind, it could feel very astonishing, which would make things even more dangerous. So it's best to come back to this when you can be still and you can relax. If you're someplace where you're able to be still and relax, then you can inquire wholeheartedly. And together we could inquire wholeheartedly so that we might realize something wonderful. Let's consider the words that you are hearing right now. Where are they? The words you hear are not my voice. The words you hear are not even a recording of my voice. We could say the words you hear are a sound, but how do you hear sound? We think of sound as mechanical vibrations, but if we look inside your brain, we won't find mechanical vibration and we won't find any sound. There is no sound except your experience of sound, your awareness of sound. But we can examine you forever and we won't find awareness or experience inside of you. It's not even laying around in your near vicinity. The words you hear appear to you, but they don't exist anywhere. Not the words you hear. Again, if you're driving, be careful not to get too caught up in this. It requires our full attention. But if you are sitting somewhere and you can become still for a moment, you can try to find these very words. Where are they? Where is the mind that hears these words? No matter how long you look, you cannot find the mind that hears these words. And thus you cannot really find the words. You could also look at a tree or you could look at your own hand. Let it float there in front of you, your own hand, or just stare at a tree. Gently gaze at it. What you see is real in the sense that it appears to you. You can see the tree, you can see your own hand. But no one could ever find the tree or the hand anywhere inside of you. We can't find the appearance of your own hand anywhere inside of you. It's as if the words that you hear now, the tree, the hand, they all exist like a kind of spaciousness. They aren't an object, not really. Or if you like, you could say your awareness of these, the original mind aware of words, trees, and hands cannot become an object. You can try all you like, but you cannot make an object of your awareness. And yet the tree, the hand, the words are only awareness itself. In each case, awareness itself is all we would find, and yet it's kind of unfindable. In a way, it's like a spaciousness. It's spacious and free so that it can manifest as words, trees, and hands. And also, it must have an inherent knowing or gnosis. 
This isn't knowledge as we ordinarily think of it, which involves thought and concepts and usually an object of knowledge. Rather, we're talking about an immediate and intimate gnosis, as if space itself had a knowing awareness, as if the words you hear right now are not words but awareness itself. The appearance of words, trees, or your own hand in your awareness is like the appearance of a woman floating in front of a magician. You know the woman can't really be floating, and yet it appears totally real. She looks like she's floating. Your hand appears real, and it has a relational reality. But it's only relationally real, just like the illusion. Your hand, the trees, and everything else you perceive is nothing other than your own awareness itself. Your own awareness is not a hand or a tree or a bunch of words, but it immediately appears as these things. It's like an incredible magic trick, and you do it all the time. This is a pure and simple fact about our experience. It's pure in the sense that once we deeply, deeply realize it, nothing can be added to it. All the teachings of love wisdom could not add to this basic realization. But fully and completely realizing this doesn't come easy. And in the meantime, we need the teachings of the wisdom traditions to guide us, to ground our vision and our ethics and we all need each other in order to take care of the world and keep it evolving in a good way. Our thoughts are part of this whole magic show. Your thoughts have never existed anywhere inside of you or outside of you. The nature of mind is not what we experience as thought. Rather, our habitual thought is nothing other than our habitual ignorance and suffering. And thought thus also has a relational reality. It has an effect on our experience and on the world. Thought does something. If we can liberate ourselves from taking the illusion as real, we can go from spectator to magician we can begin to actively participate in the magic of the cosmos. And that's why people follow the path of love wisdom. It teaches us the magic of the world, the real magic of the world. The reason we go to see a sleight of hand artist has this hidden meaning that the soul is urging us, sending us messages to seek this experience of magic, to understand this mystery to feel how magic is real. And not just in this sense that we've been talking about, as if it's a, a psychological phenomenon, but we're talking about how the interwovenness of the world manifests 
as a real magic. Now this magic is not real in the simple-minded sense that we go around sawing people in half and then put them back together again. But there is a magic in the world and that magic can heal us. It may heal our bodies and our minds and it may put us back together when we feel our whole life has gone to pieces. When people follow the path of love wisdom, they begin to experience real magic. When we enter that path, we enter into an intimate experience of the magic and mystery of the cosmos. Even listening to these contemplations can begin to open things up for you. If you listen with a good heart and you begin to practice your life, synchronicities will inevitably begin to arise. It would be rare for it not to happen, and they can correlate with the depth of your practice. You can begin to touch the impossible interwovenness of things and magic will begin to happen. When we think of synchronicity in the most general way, if we think of synchronicity as really the, the catchphrase term for the interwovenness of all things, then we could imagine putting a large class of phenomena under the big umbrella of the synchronistic. You know, we could include things like telepathy, precognition, remote viewing, and more. So synchronicity in this very large sense is like another word for the magic of, of the cosmos. It's not a personal psychological experience, but an expression of the non-duality of mind and matter, the non-locality of the cosmos itself, the fundamental meaningfulness and interwovenness of the cosmos. Even at the personal level, synchronicity always means the rupture of our habitual and egocentric notions of time, space, and self. And in that basic sense, it is always an expression of the magic of the cosmos. Now these experiences of synchronicity, in the broader sense, but also in the smaller, more personal psychological sense, they're quite common and also scientifically validated. The science of the dominant culture doesn't know how to explain them, but the findings are as real as any others we have. And they constitute the finding that there's magic, that the cosmos has magic. We just don't like to talk about these findings in mainstream science. So we are going to try to talk about them contemplate magic in a serious way. Our story about magic. It showed how the experience of magic can bring us a kind of healing. That was small peanuts compared to what is possible. But even this simple story for a young kind of inexperienced magician, it softened the reactivity and the karma of a whole group of people. There's actually a lot in that story. And it's a good prelude to a series of contemplations, a serious discussion of the real principles of magic. What are the principles of real magic? And can we consider magic in a serious way? What is the real magic of the world? 
And at the end of the day, we're really asking, can we enter into the inconceivable and let go of the deluded magical thinking that pervades this culture, the magical thinking that degrades the world? Could we dispel that illusion and enter into the kind of magic that could heal and help the world? Now, these questions are essential. It doesn't matter our views about magic. And certainly when it comes to questioning the magical thinking, it, it doesn't matter whether we think magic is real or not. The dominant culture is filled with magical thinking under the guise of realism. Now, it's not easy in this context to acknowledge and seriously inquire into the ways in which magic might be real. So it's essential to think with care and sensitivity and to remain critical of unskillful ideas and practices. And although we may find some strange kinds of magical thinking in the dominant culture, we may come to sense that we needn't concern ourselves as much with the things we find in so-called New Age books as we should concern ourselves with the stuff we find in the political speeches, corporate mission statements, and so on. Granted, now some of the law of attraction and abundance mindset stuff is really a kind of magical thinking. It's dangerous, it's unrealistic, and it's quite unfortunate because it harms the good word of magic. It harms the world as well. So the, the good name of magic gets a little despoiled by certain things that we want to write off as woo-woo, and the world also can be harmed by those things. Woo-woo magic that doesn't come with wisdom, love, and beauty, and doesn't come with critical reflection, that won't help us. The notion or discussion of magic that doesn't root itself in good, clear thinking, discernment, wisdom, compassion, and care will inevitably lead to more suffering. And even when we're discerning, it doesn't matter what topic of love wisdom, but even when we're discerning, our penchant for spiritual materialism, our tendency to want to co-opt the spiritual ideas, and the tendency for the culture to try to encourage us to co-opt the spiritual ideas, the philosophical ideas, for the benefit of the culture, and for the benefit of our own self-centeredness, that danger remains. Now, these currents usually flow in the unconscious. We don't realize that we're doing this, that our thinking about magic or anything else, whatever our supposed beliefs, that our thinking comes with a tendency to perpetuate our self-centeredness and to perpetuate the dominant culture's delusions. That danger will stay with us. It will loom over us sometimes. But we can confront it. We can have the courage to turn and look. And we can at least try to avoid the kind of shallow notions of magic in the world that simply have to do with medicating ourselves, making ourselves feel better, giving us a sense of false hope, and empowering us to pursue agendas that don't really help the world, whatever we may profess. The agendas of the dominant culture don't ultimately help the world either. And there's a tremendous amount of delusion about that. 
And so it seems that the kinds of magical thinking we find in the capitalistic marketplace, the kinds of things our standard education and the vast propaganda now gets us to believe, these present really the real danger, the danger that magic could help us overcome. Isn't that strange suggestion? It's to say that in this culture filled with magical thinking and all this propaganda and delusion, real magic might be the thing that could help us if we were really careful. So can we arrive at an understanding of magic that will empower us to heal ourselves and our world? That is our question and our quest in the next few contemplations. And this may all sound bizarre. We should appreciate the bizarreness. We will ask how magic might save our souls, how it might heal us in our world, how it might help us to mature. What a strange thing. How could magic help us to mature? We'll need to look at several things. First, we will consider some of the basic principles of magic in a way that allows us to think about it with discernment. And we could say that we're going to try to take a rational approach to magic, but the notion of rationality has gotten encumbered in the dominant culture. So you know, fans of rationality tend to sound like priests of the religion of scientism or the religion of capitalism or both. Critics of our encumbered rationality tend to emphasize things like emotion and intuition, and they do so usually without enough emphasis on holism. So their critique ends up as fragmented and fragmenting as those they perceive as on the other side of the discussion. Can we think clearly without getting woo-woo, without, without shutting down, though, in the face of what feels threatening. Now that will lead to the next contemplation of the sequence, which has to do with confronting the fear that magic instills and confronting our resistance to magic. Intellectually, people can say whatever they want, but in practice, many people either keep magic away from themselves and thus never experience it, or people may experience it only to find out that it actually frightens them. The latter fact, the fact that it feels frightening when we experience it, means that collectively we might be doing an awful lot to keep magic out of our lives. And finally, we will consider what it means to enter into the real magic of the world, what it demands of us in terms of our way of life, so that we have a realistic and skillful sense of magic appropriate for supporting the community of life and honoring the sacredness and wonder of the cosmos. I hope you'll join us then for this series of contemplations, and please do send in your reflections, your questions about these matters. You can send those in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org, and we'll address some of those questions and reflections in an upcoming contemplation. I should probably make clear that the story of how magic saved my life is a true story, but I did change some of the names which means that technically, if there is somebody out there named the Immortal Sausage or the Death Sausage, the story's not about you. But I hope you enjoyed, and again, it's important to reflect on the truth of this experience of magic and its power, and we'll be opening up the meaning of magic as we go along in our contemplations. So until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, Reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.